0: Welcome to Twenty Four for Karis. I'm Devin Owens-Toller, leader of operations and analytics at Karis by KJE. We are a tech-enabled consulting and leadership development firm specializing in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in this segment, we are focused on supplier diversity. We have Amy Kromis here with us. She is the director of DEI for North America with Essity. Welcome, Amy.
1: Hello, Devin. It's a joy to be here with you
0: yes i'm excited to dive into this conversation Um, i know you have many many years of experience in supplier diversity specifically um, in the construction industry so definitely want to get your take and kind of stance on all things supplier diversity are you ready i am i am all right so how did diversity supplier diversity programs start Give us the history and the context. Yes, I absolutely
1: love giving this history um, because I'm a curious nerd at heart. Love historical context, uh, but also my grandmother... Um, I didn't know when I was younger, my grandmother was involved in, you know, an active participant in in these supplier diversity programs when they started in the 1960s Mm -hmm. and 70s and led the efforts on these in many areas. And so it certainly is literally my blood, I would like to say, in terms of just my passion for it. But um, many may think that supplier diversity programs started you know, as a result of the atrocities that happened in 2020 and, oh, all of these companies responding. But in reality, uh, supplier diversity programs have roots in uh, legislation and civil rights le- legislation and also affirmative action. And so when people think of affirmative action, uh, they many times think of quotas um, mm-hmm. in terms of, all right, I, I, need to meet this quota for this many people in my company or this quota for contracts you know, in my procurement schedules. Actually, quotas are unconstitutional. Um, no one can really put forth quotas. You can have goals that you aspire to, um, but affirmative action at the end of the day, affirmative means positive or helpful. Mm-hmm. It's positive and helpful action to help remedy past discrimination for these mm-hmm. communities that have endured and toiled so much and really don't have the same the same starting space or starting you know, line on, yeah. you know, on the race, on the track uh, to really make the most of, of life and economic, just prosperity in general. And so uh, when you think about affirmative action, it really affected two main areas, um, admissions in terms of higher education and then also mm-hmm. government contracting, which are two you know, pathways to wealth in our communities, right? So when you typically have more access to education, you have more access to opportunities, you have higher earning potential. Same with government contracts. These government contracts can be in the millions, multi-millions, billions even sometimes, many times. And so you're talking about these pathways to wealth and Mm -hmm. how these programs were established to really reinforce that and really to support that. So Mm -hmm. it really all started back in 1961 when President Kennedy signed an executive order. That's when affirmative action even became a, a term that was used. Um, and after his assassination, President um, Lyndon B. Johnson, he then signed into into um, legislation the Civil Rights Act, right? Most sweeping civil rights legislation, you know, post civil post Civil War Reconstruction era, and focusing on individuals. Who are you hiring? Yeah. Are they individuals from minority communities? Things of that nature. Um, but then you start getting into the later 1960s and you have President Nixon, who signed an executive order establishing the in what is what is now known as the NBDA, Minority Business Development Agency, really targeting pay hey, for business empowerment, for economic prosperity. We need to define programs and resources to really help this community in access and fairness in contracting, particularly yeah. in government contracting. So you have all of this federal activity that's happening in the 1960s, early 1970s. And no matter how cynical you are of government, um, which I I have a teeny bit in me, certainly, um, you, st- I still have to sit back and recognize and acknowledge the fact that if it were not for government's response and really serving as the catalyst for showing that this is important, for showing that there needs to be some type of remedy for past discrimination, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have this other cascade of influences on the state level, on the local level, right? You start seeing Maynard Jackson in the 1970s in Atlanta saying, hey, When we build Atlanta Hartsfield Airport, 25 Mm percent of the contracts are going to go to minority businesses. You have Mary and Barry in Washington, D.C. saying, hey, I'm going to focus on black owned businesses and making sure that we're building wealth as well. So if it were not for the federal government establishing these programs, we would not have seen, you know, these other reverberations until much later. Um, And then also that's also all on the public side, on the private side. We have massive government contractors. So the big three in the automotive space, telecom and telecom companies who were government contractors who had to abide by these mandates. So now they started their supplier diversity programs, right? Mm -hmm. And so the ones who were truly committed also saw how this was a differentiator and they built upon it and things of that nature. So these federal programs really initiated a lot of contact and initiated a lot of engagement on the public side and also the private side. So that's like a little mini history of supplier diversity. And, and whenever I talk to those who have come before me in this space, I just love kind of learning new tidbits mm. and, and things of that nature, but that's a very, very condensed version.
0: Yeah, no, I learned a lot in that condensed version. Um, so I appreciate it. So talk a little bit about the definition of and the requirement to be considered a diverse supplier.
1: Yes. so. The um, standard definition is you need to be 51% owned, operated and controlled um, by some type of underrepresented community. So this started with MBEs or Minority Business Enterprise. So that covers African-American, American American Indian, American, Asian, Hispanic, and Native American. I believe I have all five there. Um, And then expanded into WBEs or Women Business Enterprise Then you have all sorts of other designations as well, which I guess we'll talk about with the evolution of these programs. Um, But really the the focus is to make sure that ownership, once again, from a wealth creation standpoint, 51% needs to be owned by this individual who um, can be placed into one of those categories. And so the operated and controlled is where it can get a little interesting in gray in terms of how these companies are vetted to make sure that they're actually bona fide, you know, controlled and operated by these individuals. Mm-hmm. So that is the overarching definition for what that looks like.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And how are voices of diverse business owners being heard and respected in 2022? How is that landscape changed from the 1970s and kind of the historical start? And what are we seeing today? Yeah, um
1: it's a really good question because certainly it is uh, a conversation. Um even if you were to look at businesses and who they did business with and their supply chain, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it looked to mm. be much less diverse than it does now. Um not to say that we have reached the pinnacle of, right. you know, supplier diversity engagement, um but it is a lot better than it was. However, on the flip side what I am seeing is particularly after 2020 Um, you're starting to hear voices going from being less tolerated to more appreciated and respected. Mm -hmm. And so a prime example I give for this is the 15% pledge, which was started by Aurora James. And it was initially, if I remember this correctly, was targeted towards the beauty industry. Um, and the whole logic is Black Americans represent 15% of America, so dedicate 15% of your shelf space to Black-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the past, perhaps, I mean, certainly in the 1960s, 70s, I can imagine that putting that charge forth to to multiple major retailers may have not been received well or received at all. Yes. And so now you, I kind of see the power dynamic shifting where you have companies actually wanting to listen to communities and say, all right, how can we actually take action? Or what can we do? Tell tell us what we can do. Do it now, mm. right? And so with Aurora now, like if you go, for instance, Target signed on to her pledge. So if you go into Target and you see different Uh, Black-owned businesses such as Lip Bar, which has great products in the beauty section, or if you go into Sephora and you see um, Mazzani, or you see other products that are either owned by, by, by Black individuals or who also cater towards the Black community, I always think about, whoa, Aurora, she used her advocacy for good these businesses listened and you Mm -hmm. actually literally see the change on the shelf. So that's really what I'm seeing just in terms of voices and respect.
0: Yeah. So that just made me think, so when I go into a store, it's really exciting to see um, either an ad that looks like me, a product that I use on a daily basis in a store, you know, more of a mainstream store and I can buy that, um, that product. Can you talk a little bit about your opinion or our, our thoughts on how social media or kind of technology has changed how um, companies kind of see and perceive supplier diversity?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you have consumers who can make you or break you nowadays mm. with one post on their social media, how inconsiderate, or who who was or who wasn't sitting at the table when this decision was made in marketing, Mm -hmm. right? I'm thinking about Juneteenth and the Walmart ice cream debacle, right? Who approved this? Who was in the room? And if someone was in the room who was a Black person, did they even feel empowered to say, hey, are you going to actually listen to what I have to say around this space? Mm -hmm. So I think certainly you're seeing not only supplier diversity, um, being elevated, but also how we present our supplier diversity efforts to the external uh, yeah. people that be into our consumers, right? How do we make sure that it's authentic? How do we make sure that we're also coming, you know, being forthright with where we did miss the mark or that we're not here yet, but here's what we're doing now. Yeah. So I think the communications and the marketing piece is absolutely critical to make sure that your good intentions are translated as good intentions yes. and not translated as performative um, and things of that nature. So companies have to be far more intentional around how they do good and particularly how they do good for communities because communities of color, because people will research Google, mm-hmm. you have everything at the tips of your, you know, at, at your fingertips. And consumers are just far more well um, educated now, and feel far more empowered to call out um, businesses to the carpet.
0: Yeah. So, talk a little bit about. Um, so we're we're calling them to the carpet. We have social media now. What is the link between kind of supplier diversity in in DEI, and how does how does that structure usually happen? Because um, I guess in my mind if supplier diversity is connected to the broader DEI strategy, would we have some of those kind of um, oops moments? (laughs) Um, Would it even make it that far? Um, So talk a little bit about kind of the link to, to the broader strategy, broader DEI. If it's there, if it's not there, you know, your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I certainly think that there there are natural synergies between supplier diversity and DEI efforts. Um, how how companies go about structuring that is typically different, but for there to be truly effective outcomes and just an effective process, supplier diversity needs to be rooted in procurement, right? At the end of the mm-hmm. day, it's a procurement function. You mm-hmm. are, and this is this is from my perspective, of course, yeah. you know, you are diversifying your supply chain. So when you have someone in supplier diversity, they need to understand the processes. They need to understand the workflow, because if you don't understand that space, how can you change it? Mm. But at the same time, there needs to be a dotted line, but to really reflect that synergy of Okay, there's a clear link. We're serving diverse communities. We're outreaching to diverse communities. We need to make sure it's in alignment with our business strategy. We need to make Mm -hmm. sure it's in alignment with our DEI strategy as well. So that way we're putting forth a cohesive message of our commitment to the marketplace, to our customers, to our suppliers.
0: Yes. Yes. That's so good. So good. All right. This has been a great first episode. Thank you for joining us um, on our first episode, focused on Supplier Diversity with Amy Chromis. I'm Devin Owens-Teller with 24 Cares, and we help you live a 24-7 commitment to DEI 365 days of the year.